when I was living very far away uh, and I, I had the very uncanny experience of waking up to the sound of them calling my name. And I, I choose those words deliberately. It did not at all feel like a dream. Um, it felt very much like, you know, just my dad's inimitable voice saying my name in the way that only my father could um, on a day that, as it turned out, my father had a heart attack. I'm Matthew Philp. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. And this is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about daddy issues, father figures, and dismantling the paternal mystique. We examine how fathers, both literal and symbolic, influence pop culture, politics, and the lives of people of every generation from all over the world. So settle in and listen as we delve into some dad stuff. I'm Erin Hosier. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And we're back for a new old interview. We actually had this conversation with our guest, Katherine Schultz, about nine months ago. Catherine is the author of Lost and Found, which is kind of a memoir essay hybrid that came out earlier this year and has now been longlisted for the National Book Award. It was a big bestseller. It was longlisted for the Andrew Carnegie Medal. It's been called one of the best books of the year by NPR and Publishers Weekly and the New York Times. Let me just read a little bit about Catherine Busy. Okay. Catherine Schultz is a staff writer for The New Yorker magazine and the author of Being Wrong. She won a National Magazine Award and a Pulitzer Prize in 2016 for The Really Big One, which was an article about seismic risk in the Pacific Northwest. Hmm. Lost and Found grew out of Losing Streak, a New Yorker essay that was anthologized in the Best American Essays. Her work has also appeared in the Best American Science and Nature Writing, the Best American Travel Writing, and the Best American Food Writing. A native of Ohio, she lives with her family on the eastern shore of Maryland. So now that I live in Ohio, I live in Cleveland Heights, which is right next to Shaker Heights, where Catherine grew up. And when she came to promote the book, she had sort of a hero's welcome in Shaker Heights at the Cuyahoga County Library. And my friend Lori Kinzer, the librarian there, was like, you cannot not interview Catherine Schultz for your podcast because Lost and Found begins with losing her father, who is just a larger-than-life character, to say the least. Mm -hmm. What did you think of the book, Busy? Oh, I loved it so much. It's the way that it's structured is it begins with with loss and, mm -hmm. and a meditation on loss, both in the literal act of losing objects and then metaphorical and, and loss as it refers to death. The second half of the book is mostly about finding love. Um, yeah. When she was grieving the death of her dad, she ended up meeting her partner who she's married to, whose name is Casey Sepp, who's also a New Yorker writer. Yeah. Um, and I mean, this couple really needs to try a little harder. Oh, yeah, because Casey Zepp is no slouch either um, yeah. and is also an author. And she they meet in an incredible I don't know. It's a bunch of coincidences. The whole book is a kind of mm -hmm. about the the magic of coincidences and the mm -hmm. poetry to be found in that whole concept of we must lose to know what it feels like to gain, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But then she takes it so much deeper. And I know you're going to read a little passage mm -hmm. um, because in her work as a science writer, she's just making the connections about yeah. how it all fits together, the universe. Mm -hmm. And yet she herself, because she's a science gal, is really skeptical but when we talk to her, it's just, I don't know. I got chills a few times. Yeah. I mean, she is a, a very science, it's a very scientific approach. And when, when we talked to her, of course, being us, we tried to get her to be like, do you ever hear the ghost of your father's voice? <laughs> um, to which Catherine very, very kindly indulged us. 
But I wanted to just read a little bit from the first half of Lost and Found. And actually, I just randomly, when you and I were getting ready to record this, turned, opened the book to a random page and found these sections outlined. Um, Mm. So I'll read these outlined sections that I just randomly um, stumbled upon. So she's she's first she's talking about she uses the concept of losing objects to paint a picture of her dad, her very smart lawyer father, who was sort of a total brilliant intellectual voracious reader, but very forgetful and was constantly losing things. Um, Mm. And she says each of us misplaces roughly nine objects per day which means that by the time we turn 60, we will have lost nearly 200,000 things. You know, that there are so many things that just disappear that we never are able to locate again. Um, But then she talks about loss in terms of death. She says, in the end, this may be why certain losses are so shocking, not because they defy reality, but because they reveal it. One of the many ways that loss instructs us is by correcting our sense of scale, showing us the world as it really is, so enormous, complex, and mysterious that there is nothing too large to be lost, and conversely, no place too small for something to get lost there. Mm. And then she says, Like awe and grief, to which it is closely related, loss has the power to instantly resize us against our surroundings. We are never smaller and the world never larger. So when something important goes missing. Amen. She describes death as universal impermanence. Over and over, loss calls on us to reckon with this universal impermanence, with the baffling, maddening, heartbreaking fact that something that was just there can be all of the sudden just gone. Buckle up, America. Buckle up, America, and go read this book. It's a really special book. And yeah. people listening whose parents have all of a sudden just gone or friends or even, you know, the deaths that we experience in friendships or relationships or, or your people. own memories. Yeah. Losing people to dementia or mm-hmm. mental illness who continue to live, who who disappear yeah. into addiction. It's These are all losses, too. But there's a lot of hope and a lot of beauty and a lot of love, a lot of love. We enjoyed hearing about Catherine's tale of finding love because she, you know, was someone who was sort of ambivalent about dating and relationships. And yeah, she just wasn't looking for it. She wasn't looking for it. And then she she ended up getting asked to go to lunch, sort of set up with Casey, her wife. A friend said, why don't you just get lunch with her? And Catherine really didn't want to, and she did it anyways. So listeners, always go to the lunch you don't want to go to. (laughs) Yeah. She tells that story in here. It's good. What else do we want to say to the people? I think that's it. Enjoy our interview recorded way back when. Catherine, thank you for coming on. And go buy her paperback out now. It's so good. Like this week, right? Yep. It's out in paperback November 22nd. 2022. A Thanksgiving miracle. Another Thanksgiving miracle. Okay. Let's hear more from Catherine Schultz. Talking about my father is a real joy because my father was, in fact, an incredibly joyful person and and a terrific dad. Um, But he had a very unusual life. So my father was born in Tel Aviv when it was still a part of Palestine uh, and promptly lost his it's almost his entire maternal family uh, and, and, and quite a lot of extended family on both sides uh, to the Holocaust, his maternal family in specific. Uh, he lost um, both grandparents and 11 out of 12 aunts and uncles in Auschwitz. And his family then got kind of kicked around the globe for a while by the combined forces of geopolitical violence uh, were, of course, you know, dominant uh, all over the world in the mid-century, uh, and then familial poverty, uh, which really constrained their options as well, and then eventually um, wound up via refugee visas landing in Detroit, uh, which is where my dad grew up. And in some ways, his life got better as soon as he got to Detroit, uh, and he has very fond memories of, of his childhood and of arriving in America. But his family remained a pretty contentious 
place to grow up. His his parents' marriage by then was not a happy one, presumably in part because their life circumstances had been so difficult and so unhappy. So dad's childhood in general was really characterized by kind of every kind of strife, you know, from the domestic level all the way up to like truly the international and, and, and sort of world historical level. And part of what's always been incredible to me about him is that despite all that, he somehow emerged into adulthood as um, truly both one of the most brilliant and one of the most ebullient people you could ever meet. Yeah. So that's the short version. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about your paternal grandmother? Because the story itself, I mean, we talk a lot about intergenerational trauma on this show. And you talk a little bit about about that and so much more in the book Lost and Found. But it is an extraordinary story, just thinking about destiny or the cosmos or how any of us get here. Kind yeah. of a miracle. It is. Um, it's it's both a, a true human feat and and does have that quality of a miracle in the sense of I think we're always amazed when when anything is salvaged out of out of massive catastrophe and and that is kind of my grandmother's life. Um, I wish I could tell you more about her. Uh, I'll tell you what I know and then I'll tell you why I don't know anymore. Um, so my grandmother was born on a shtetl in Poland uh, to a large family. You heard me reference uh, all those aunts and uncles of my father's. She was the youngest of 13 siblings. And when the, the kind of unmistakable shadow of the Second World War was, was falling over Poland and it was pretty clear what was going to happen, they, like many families, um, you know, tried to figure out how to protect themselves. And they ultimately had only enough resources to, to get one child to safety. And, and so they mm -hmm. sent their youngest by means somewhat unknown to all of us uh, off to Palestine. Um, my father's best guess, uh, sort of informed by the kinds of things you overhear as a child and, and pick up in these kind of subtle ways. My father's best guess is that it was an arranged marriage. Um, they, they found an older gentleman, Polish gentleman, in, already in Palestine and married her off. And so she wound up uh, there as, uh, in kind of her late teens, married to a much older man, had my father quite quickly, um, and then had a second son uh, and then you know, saw her, by, by then the war really had come and the rest of her family was sent off to Auschwitz. And uh, with the single exception of the oldest sibling in that family who survived Auschwitz, uh, all the rest perished. So my grandmother, you know, there she is. She's 17, 18, 19, yeah. uh, married to a near stranger, living in a strange land, waiting, you know, for years to learn what happened to the family she did know and the world that she did know. And Obviously, that news when it came in was terrible and then, you know, makes this kind of journey across the world is sort of picking up and, and reforming her life again and again until they wound up in the United States. And, you know, that's what I know. What I don't know is basically everything. Um, it's sad. You know, there are there are people in my life um, who I wish I had spent more time talking to and getting their memories and recording those memories, including my dad. I mean, I did actually get my yeah. dad to record his memories and that was incredible. And in retrospect, I wish I'd done it, you know, once a year for <laughs> my entire life. Uh, yeah. Might have been a lot to expect of a toddler, but it's, it's wonderful to have that. And I wish I had had it of, of more people in my life. But with my grandmother, it was really tricky because I actually did on multiple occasions try to get her to talk about her life. And as is not unusual uh, among survivors, direct or indirect, uh, of the trauma of the Holocaust. She really didn't want to. Yeah. And her English was not um, was not excellent anyway, but it was not a language barrier. It was a, an emotional uh, barrier or an emotional decision to protect herself or some combination of the two. Uh, but it was very, very difficult to get her to say more about her life, which is why we have such an impoverished okay. understanding of her. Um, and, and that was true of my father, too. I mean, what he knew of her was largely what he knew as a son and could glean. Very little of it was, was openly and directly shared by her. Mm -hmm. And yet he ended up speaking six languages. That's right. Uh, seven, I think. Seven. Uh, yes. Um, I sometimes forget that my father, curiously enough, um, in his 20s, mastered Korean. Uh, but but that uh, when, when I speak of the languages, he, he mastered... Um, before he came to the United States, he and my dad, by the time he got here, he spoke Polish and Hebrew and Yiddish and German 
and then um, French, uh, and then um, once he came to the United States, of course, they, they promptly put him uh, into what was then called Americanization school. I'm not sure if this phenomenon still exists anymore. Uh, and, and he learned English. So English was his sixth language, I believe, um, which Whoa. on the one hand, you might guess it wasn't his first meeting him because he did have this very heavy accent, uh, inaudible to me as his child, but much reported to me by, by friends. <laughs> uh, um, on the other hand, it's, it's a surprising fact about my father only because, um, you know, I consider myself modestly fluent in English. It's my native language and I make my living by using it. But my father yeah. put me to shame. I mean, you've, you've never met anyone with such a remarkable flair for words. Whoa. Isn't that for sure? I mean, I love a memoir where you come away smarter for <laughs> reading it. Not the norm. Um, when I heard you speak before, you mentioned H's for Hawk by Helen MacDonald, another father-daughter themed a memoir where you really learn a lot about life, but also about language. And you credit your father with your incredible vocabulary or parts of it. Um, at one point, I was struck by the word circumjoviating. <laughs> Can you tell that story about just him using that in a sentence? Yeah, I would be delighted to. It's a real Isaac Schultz story. Anyone who ever met my father has an Isaac Schultz story, and, and this is a great example of one. So sometime in my, I don't let's say late 20s, I was reading something for the life of me. I have no idea what, but, you know, I have, I have some interest in science. I'm sure I was reading some, you know, journal, some obscure journal article or something. And I came across this very strange word, circumjoviating, which I never heard me and, you know, most of the rest of the English speakers on the planet. So I go yeah. and I look it up and it turns out I hadn't heard it because it has an incredibly specific meaning. It means in orbit around Jupiter, which when you think about it, you know, make, makes a certain etymological sense. So as it happens, at the time, I was living in New York City, and my dad um, was was in town, um, I think, for work, if memory serves. So we were having dinner together that night, which was super fun. Very rarely did we have occasion, uh, you know, in my adulthood to have dinner, just the two of us. But we go out to dinner, and first question out of my mouth, practically, is, you know, Dad, you ever heard this word circumjoviating? You know what it means? Because my dad knew a lot of words. I thought these were kind of the kinds of, you know, fun games that we would play with each other. So I asked him. I was just curious. And he thought about it for maybe 30 seconds. And then he ponied up an answer. And it was not the right answer, but it was, I honestly think, the most beautiful answer anyone could ever have come up with. He said, avoiding God. Yeah. And I just, I mean, talk about etymologically beautiful. So again, it makes perfect sense, you know, to be, he heard in Jove, instead of hearing Jupiter, he heard what Jupiter's name for, you know, Jove, the God, and came up with this, with this beautiful definition. And it struck me in part because my dad managed to invent, to invent a word on the fly that actually we really need, you know, <laughs> and, and there isn't a concise and, and wonderful term for it. So, of course, it immediately entered my vocabulary with its wrong meaning, because very rarely in life do I need to talk about being in orbit around Jupiter. But all the time, all of us need to talk about this feeling of avoiding God or, or whatever, according to your own cosmology, that would be, you know, avoiding your moral responsibility, avoiding your conscience, whatever it might be for you. Um, it's, it's an incredibly useful word. So thanks, Dad. <laughs> Seriously. Did he read to you a lot when you were very small? He did, yeah. Uh, so my father was um, basically responsible for uh, bedtime story duty from the time okay. I was very little. So um, did he read to us? Well, you know, probably about 20% of the time. Uh, the other 80% of the time, he either wildly embellished the story as it appeared on the page, <laughs> uh, or he just uh, made them up. And in fact, my father invented a, a set of bedtime stories for my sister and me about the adventures of, you know, two little children conveniently right between our ages um, and, and all the trouble they got into. And this was a source of much delight to us. And speaking of things I wish I had recorded, I think we all wish that we had written those stories down. Uh, but but at the time, it seemed like there was this endless quantity of them and childhood was endless and, and why bother? Uh, but but yeah, in many other ways, too, um, my dad was always reading to us. You know, he would read to us from, from the newspaper in the morning when there was a story he thought was interesting that we should know about or, or that might be interesting to us, too. He would read to us from the Norton Anthology of Poetry because my dad loved poetry. He would, you know, bellow aloud to us from from Shakespeare's plays and from whatever, you know, contemporary novel he might be reading. He was um, a thing I really loved about my father's parenting style and that I think a lot about now that I'm a parent myself is uh, 
he had a he had a real instinct just to share the world with his kids. Mm-hmm. You know, if something was striking or pleasing or interesting to him, he sort of invited us to, to be a part of that. And um, certainly that was true of all of his reading. Okay, so the book opens with the loss of your father. Can you talk a little bit about just the structure of the book yourself and how you came to approach it? And and then we'll talk about part one, part two, and part three. Sure. So, well, thank you. You just did some of the work for me. It's a book in three <laughs> parts. Um, uh, those three parts, the book is called Lost and Found, and the three parts are Lost, Found, uh, and then the final section is, in fact, And. And the great gift of this book is I knew that was the structure from the beginning. It was the structure that gave me the idea to write it, uh, which if you've ever done any writing, you know, structure is the hardest part. So that was a relief going into it that I at least knew the macro structure. There's a little bit of strangeness baked into that structure, which is that it is not strictly speaking chronological because the lost section is about the loss of my father and grief, um, although also very much about this strange category of loss in general and all the other things we put in it, you know, our car keys, our cell phones, our faith, our minds, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. And the found section uh, is about falling in love, finding my partner and and falling in love with her. uh, And and similarly about all the other kind of wonderful things we discover in life, uh, including trivial things like, you know, four leaf clovers or or coins, but also all these enormous things uh, like our life partner. But in reality, although the book starts with lost and moves on to found, in life I met my partner and then lost my father. They, those things happen yeah. in quick sequence, but, uh, but in the other order that they're presented in the book, uh, which felt necessary to me. You know, it felt, um, it was clear to me this book had to open with the death of my father, um, partly because although it's a book about grief, it is also very much a book about happiness Mm -hmm. uh, and about love. And it felt to me that the trajectory had to be toward happiness. So it made sense to to begin in grief and move toward joy. Yeah. But it also, um, that had a kind of nice side effect for me uh, or or, or consequence, which is that midway through the book, I got to bring my father back to life because of course he and my partner met. Uh, so, So there is a moment, we've been through the whole death of my father and yet, um, after we have met him, after we have grieved him, uh, after we have kind of moved on from that section of the book, uh, there, there he suddenly is on the page again, uh, you know, in, in his full exuberant selfhood. Um, so I hope that's fun for readers. It was certainly very fun for me. Oh, my God. It, it really is. Because, I don't know, I texted Elizabeth, who I call Busy. So if I accidentally call her Busy, childhood nickname. I think that might be all of our nicknames. There's a lot of competition. I'm going to claim that nickname. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I texted her and I said, section two, it's about hope. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just has such a, for two ladies who have struggled through our entire 30s, I was a first-time bride at 44, and Elizabeth is my oldest, youngest friend. (laughs) And when I met her, when you met your now wife, it was a love at first sight experience. And it reminded me that it's like that for friends, too. Mm -hmm. You know, like certain people are just like your soulmates kind of instantly. Mm -hmm. And it's the things unconsciously that you recognize in each other. And then all of the things that you find anew. Can you talk a little bit about about that experience, that lightning bolt experience, were you, obviously you weren't expecting it, but. I was definitely not expecting it. Um, In fact, what happened was um, my now wife and I have a mutual friend who at some point many years ago now emailed the two of us to say, you know, you two should really meet someday. You would adore each other. Um, She did not mean this as a setup. Uh, I can't even remember what prompted it. Something completely silly, like the fact that we both like country music. Um, yeah. But also are both big readers. And she just said, oh, you know, you, you, you two would really get along famously. So that was all very well and good. But um, at the time I was living up in the Hudson Valley uh, and my my partner to be was uh, living down on the eastern shore of Maryland where she was born and raised. So it was like, well, sure, in theory, you know, but we live three states from each other. But, yeah. you know, eventually um, Casey, that's my partner found herself on a road trip from her home here in Maryland all the way up to Vermont. And my little Hudson Valley town made a very convenient midway point. So she emailed me and said, um, coming through town, do you want to grab lunch? And I said, sure, you know, why not? And, and that day rolled around and 
think we've all kind of had this experience where you say yes to something in advance and then the day happens and it's like not a great day for it. And you're like, oh, why am I meeting this stranger for lunch? Like I was, as it happens, um, on deadline for a piece. I was actually on deadline for the piece I'm best known for, which is a, a piece about earthquake risk in the Pacific Northwest. And I was wildly, I say on deadline, that's a very generous way to put it. I was wildly behind on my deadline and <laughs> regretted having anything on my calendar because I'm one of these writers. Now I'm not because I have a baby, but I used to be one of these writers who liked to have, you know, just this like uninterrupted stretch of blank calendar to, to work into. And so sure. I thought, uh, but, you know, I wasn't going to stand up this nice friend of a friend who had driven all the way, was hungry. And I thought, well, you know, I got to get lunch anyway. Um, so 45 minutes tops. So I walk into town and I'm standing there on Main Street. It's actually literally Main Street outside this this little cafe where we were going to meet up. And I look down the street and there's this woman walking toward me and kind of in violation of like all standard 21st century protocol. Like I just I hadn't Googled her. I hadn't just, you know, we swapped emails through this friend and I it didn't really occur to me to like do any digging. So I didn't even know what she looked like or what she did. I didn't know anything about her. In fact, it's very unclear to me in retrospect how I was like, I just knew right away she was the person I was supposed to have lunch with. And she's immediately striking to me, you know, in that way. I mean, she's very beautiful, but but in that way, you can't even explain why, you know, I just, just arresting. I just kind of remember standing there looking at her and, you know, we said hi, we go into the cafe and we get our food and we sit out in this little back patio. It was a gorgeous spring day. And, you know, you were just talking about the, the wonder of like finding friendship. And mm -hmm. we had one of those conversations that just from, from moment one, there was no small talk, you know, it just yeah. felt deep and substantive and expansive and incredibly interesting. And she was overwhelmingly smart. And I just, you know, I got utterly lost in it. You know, I'm 45 minutes or four hours later, I think we kind of in our little days, wanders to that cafe, and uh, yeah, that's uh, that that that's the beautiful story. That's how we met, and um, you know, for for anyone listening who's in the boat you were in and and I was in, um, of being feeling older, whether you are or not, and still looking mm. and not finding, you know, the thing that is just never stopped astonishing me about that experience is how it doesn't happen, and then it does. You know, yeah. there's you're not in love and then you are. You don't know who the person is. And then like, bang, you know. Yeah, that is the most hopeful part. It's like and every time I'm going through a hard time or someone I love is going through a hard time, it's just like hang on because you never know. You just never know. On a Monday, you could be in the toilet emotionally. And on Wednesday... You know, you meet somebody that's going to change your life forever. Yeah, exactly. And and that's why I think I, this category of discovery is so beautiful to me. It's, it is astonishing what we find in the course of our life, sometimes without even trying to look for it. And so even though we, we learned that your father has died immediately, in part two about found, we learn that your wife gets to meet your dad. And your, your family, your whole family, you had a very happy childhood in Shaker Heights, Ohio, growing up. Can you describe that meeting? And then I'd love to hear you tell the story about seeing your own parents' love story mm -hmm. through the eyes of your partner at the time, who was, you'd only known each other a little while, right? A very little when while. You, yes. <laughs> yes, it was quite shocking that I invited her to come home with me to tell you the truth. I was, I was headed home to see my parents for a weekend anyway. And um, honestly, I mean, it was just shockingly early in our relationship. I would hesitate to count up how many actual days we had, like, you know, spent in each other's presence, probably under 14 or 20 at most or something like that, which in the scheme of my life, was a completely crazy time to take someone home because I'm notoriously, I had been very picky. Um, but I just, I just knew and it felt right. And I was mindful already that my father's health wasn't great and I didn't know how long we would have with him. And um, I just thought, I mean, why not, right? I, I would rather, I would rather make sure they meet. And if this doesn't work out, like, well, so what, you know, um, yeah. and if it does work out, then then wonderful. It's just that much more time together, which, of course, is what wound up happening. But um, yeah, so I took her home to Ohio and um, it was so fun. 
<laughs> I think yeah. is the word. You know, I I had um, reservations going into it, not about her and not about my family, but as any sane person would about the act of introducing your parents to someone, which I think is always a little bit nerve wracking, even when you have faith in all parties. Um, it's just mm-hmm. the first thing. It's it's the first meeting. Um, it feels, if you feel as I did, that that this is the one that you've really met the person. It feels momentous, of course. So there's some stakes. There's also the fact that my partner and I are from strikingly different backgrounds in many ways. And so I had the feeling of introducing her not just to my parents, but to my past in, in a way. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that is, it's a lot early on in a relationship. You know, there, there's a stage of a relationship when it's just like you and the person and all they have is kind of your present tense self and and whatever present tense world you've created. And at some point over the course of a relationship, of course, you know all of it, you know, you know the past, you know the the in most parts the psyche uh, and and the hopes for the future. Um, but right at the beginning, all you have is is just that little narrow glimpse. So it felt like there was a lot. Not I don't want to say at stake, but but just a lot going on to bring her home. Um, and then the minute we were there, it just felt so right. And part of that was because, as you say, I come from a very happy and very loving family. I knew my parents would be warm and great with her. Uh, and of course, she was warm and wonderful with them. And I remember at some point in the course of that weekend, we were out at a restaurant and I got up to you know, use the restroom or something. And I remember thinking, I left the three of them at the table and I remember thinking, I could leave them there for an hour. You know, <laughs> just this sense of yeah. kind of sublime faith, like this is going wonderfully, like they adore each other. This is why was I ever anxious for a moment? There, there is the opposite of anything to fear here. There's, there's just a lot to celebrate. Um, so it felt really great. Uh, and, and the other reason it felt great is very quickly watching my father and Casey interact became like my favorite sitcom, basically. <laughs> you know? uh, they're both um, very, very funny. They're both very smart. And in all these ways, they're wildly different people. I mean, by age, by gender, by, by kind of country of origin and, and family background, just totally different, but in certain deep ways uh, that are partly about how their minds work, uh, truly two of the most remarkable minds I've ever encountered, and partly about being differently but, but, but comparably self-made in certain ways, being people who, who kind of by sheer force of intellect got themselves out of one set of circumstances into a very different set of circumstances. Uh, they, they actually have a lot in common. And it was just so delightful to sit and watch them talk. Because uh, my dad, um, as, as you know from reading the book and as readers or listeners have probably already gleaned, my dad had a very large personality. He wasn't a yeah. domineering kind of guy at all, but, um, but you couldn't miss him in a room. Right. Uh, and uh, it wasn't that he talked all the time. Actually, it was that he was inclined to ask questions all the time. But then, you know, there you were kind of under the force of his wildly curious intellect and, and subject to this kind of inquisition a very friendly inquisition, but an inquisition nonetheless. Uh, And Casey, who by contrast can seem reserved at first, really just rose to the occasion in in phenomenal fashion. Uh, And and the two of them just, I think, understood each other right away. And it was such a pleasure to watch that happen. One of the scenes in the book around this time, um, you're sort of sitting back and watching. And I think your parents talk about how they met. Mm. Maybe Casey asks them about their love story. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, I absolutely can. And, and your recollection is right. We were um, sitting in a diner for brunch uh, the first full day we were there. And Casey asked my parents how they had met. And so they start telling their story, um, which, of course, I had heard a thousand times. And it was so striking to me because there I was in the middle of living my story. Right. How did you mm-hmm. meet? I mean, we had just met. You know, we were still <laughs> in that stage of like you're writing the story, basically, as, yeah. as you go along. And it felt incredibly joyful and incredibly exciting. And so I sat there listening to my parents' story which again, you know, I could have recounted. I know it very well. It's very, very sweet. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to tell the story, but the point wasn't so much the contents of their love story as the fact that all of a sudden I recognized it mm-hmm. as a love story. And I don't mean to say, I obviously knew my parents were in love. I mean, you're right to say I'm from a very happy family. Uh, and 
I appreciate you actually specifically shouting out my mom. I mean, there's this kind of unfortunate thing we often do, which is eulogize the dead. And my mom, thank goodness, is is alive and well and very much with us, but certainly deserves a um, book-length praise of her own. (laughs) So I, I, I knew how fortunate both my parents were to have found each other. And I knew how happy they were. Uh, they, they, they didn't hide it. And, um, you know, like all relationships, they had their moments, but they had an incredibly happy one. So I, I always knew that they were in love and still in love and, and had a very tender relationship. But it was shocking to suddenly realize that everything I had felt in the last, you know, handful of weeks at that point yeah. was what my parents had as well, you know, that that to them, they were still us. You know, they were still sitting at the brunch table mm. telling their story the way she and I love to do now. And, and they had written their own story. And it really was just this like strange, almost like temporal shift as if they were just like friends of ours who had just gotten together the way we had. And they were telling the story of how. And it was very moving to me. You know, I, I just, I had a real moment of simultaneously seeing them as the kind of young new loves that that they had once been and feeling this beautiful sense of like oh this is how the generations unfold you know they they fall in love and they have a child and here's their child like falling in love and so it goes right and um yes it was a it was very beautiful moment to me you have a sister who's a little little bit older than you um and she puts it this way you quote her in the book our parents had given us a love of ideas and also the idea of love. And that's so profound. I got goosebumps. It's just, it's beautiful to be able to recognize, you know, it's a simple statement, but it's so big. It's so um, big and it's so beautifully put. I mean, like tip to fellow writers, when when someone says something that beautiful, just um, give them the credit and quote it. Exactly. You'll never, you'll never <laughs> do it. <laughs> That's that's also why there's a lot of, you know, Auden and James Baldwin in my book. Sometimes people just say it better than you could ever hope to. But it's it's very sweet to me. Uh, my sister, who is a scientist, but um, could just as easily have been the one in the family to go into the business of words. Yes, yeah, said such a beautiful thing about my parents. And like many instances of beauty, it's beautiful because it's accurate. You know, it, yeah. it, it, with tremendous precision, it describes something that my that my parents did and and the people who they were and the legacy they left us. Oh, hi there. This is Matthew Philp. When we started producing Tell Me About Your Father back in 2019, Erin and Elizabeth and I did a lot of research into the best podcasting programs. One program that we're happy to have found and still use is Anchor by Spotify. It's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Okay, now let's get back to whichever specific episode of Tell Me About Your Father you're currently listening to. Along those lines, I found it somewhat refreshing for this personal story that you don't ever, you know, feature a coming out, if you will, as gay to your parents. A lot of memoirs, a lot of guests that we talk to, that's that's a big feature in, in their their story about their relationship, particularly with fathers. Um, did it ever come up for you? Was it a thing? Yeah, very reasonable question. Um, short answer, yes, I did come out to my parents. Um, and yes, it's not in the book, which is not, to be clear, an act of obfuscation. I'm not, I'm not you know, covering not totally. over something that um, runs contrary to the spirit of the story or was difficult or anything like that. It's really interesting. I mean, I read a lot of coming out stories when I was young, uh, partly because it's a lot of the queer literature you can read, right? Yeah. Uh, for, for, for very understandable reasons uh, and, and reasons that I think were incredibly beneficial to the culture, to, to young queer people, but also to the culture at large. Um, and, and frankly, paved the way for me not having to write a coming out story. You know, mm-hmm. that that was the plot of, of just an enormous amount of both fiction and nonfiction in the queer yes. space. Uh, and I'm so grateful. You know, I, I could not have written a book that wasn't that without all of the, the people um, 
taking the time and finding the courage to write the books that were that story. Because in fact, I think that's part of what made it possible for me to have an um, incredibly peaceful coming out to my parents. Mm -hmm. Now, some of that was them, you know, um, as it happens, my older sister is a lesbian as well. And uh, so they had, they had put up with it twice. I, I, I'm obviously <laughs> saying put up with comically, to be very, very clear. I think um, I feel incredibly <laughs> lucky to be who I am. And I think my parents, to their great credit, uh, feel incredibly lucky that we're their daughters. Um, but, you know, it was not, it's gotten, I think, easier with every passing year. And it's been a lot of years, which is to say, you know, it was not easy for everyone who came out when I came out. And I think it's a credit to my parents uh, that they, you know, I, I think if I were going to distill the, their kind of essence as parents in general, I would say they really understood about unconditional love. You know, that from mm. the beginning, they they loved us because we were their daughters, you know, not because we did well in school, not because we were polite, not because we did all the things they wished they could have done when they were kids. Like none of that, right? The, the, they loved us because we were Laura and Catherine, they're, they're little girls. And sometimes we screwed up and sometimes we annoyed them. And sometimes I, in particular, had temper tantrums or was disobedient or, you know, a teenager or whatever. But, but it didn't matter how they kind of handled the moment depended on how we were behaving. But, but the deep core of the relationship was, we love you guys. You know, we love you because you're you. And that certainly extended to us coming out. And I'm, you know, I was immensely grateful at the time. I'm immensely grateful today. And among other things, you know, it liberated me from, I could write a coming out story, it would be wildly boring, you know, and I say that yeah, as someone yeah. who believes that happiness isn't boring, right, and that <laughs> love isn't boring, but I, so I guess the thing to say is actually it would be short, and so it just didn't feel like it needed or, or wanted to be a part of the structure of this book, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Speaking of the word boring, let's talk about the, the stages of grief. Mm -hmm. And the ah. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and the boredom of grief, but also the fact that it was your book that reminded me or, or told me for the first time that the word sad or sadness is not one of the first, the original or even the, the later conceived stages of grief. Yeah, isn't that weird? I thought so. Why do you think that is, Catherine, that it's not, yeah. that sadness is not part of that? Well, I mean, look, I should start out by saying that I am obviously not a professional grief counselor or, or therapist. So, you know, I think that people wiser than I who have thought more deeply about grief, um, if not in the specific, then, then in the general, uh, would have more sophisticated things to say about this. But I think that some people would argue that it's a little bit captured by one of the canonic stages, which is depression. You know, the stages as originally rendered were denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And you could argue that depression captures some of the sadness, but I think most people um, would share my intuition, which is, well, actually, sadness and depression are really different, right? And, and, and those are not the same thing. And it's very striking that sadness, just this, this pure thing, um, that we think is the essence most of the time of losing someone uh, is is not a part of how we parse this into stages. Whether or not we think it makes sense to parse this into stages is a whole other question, but I can't exactly tell you why it's it's not in the stages, but I can tell you that in my experience, that doesn't feel as wildly inaccurate as you might think it should. Was I sad when my father died? Of course, you know, immensely, enormously. Yeah. But when I think about what it is like to grieve someone, you know, there are for sure waves of just pure and unadulterated sorrow. And sometimes those feel manageable. You know, they feel almost a tiny bit sweet in, in the way that it does seem like what you're supposed to be feeling. It is full of the essence of, of the person who you're missing, right? Um, and it, and it just feels like this kind of calm, beautiful, sorrowful place that, that you're left to sit for a while. And sometimes it's completely devastating. You know, it, it will absolutely bring you to your knee. So sorrow is present, you know, in both of those forms, the kind of tolerable one and the intolerable ones, as it were, although one must tolerate the both. But a lot of grief is not taken up with those moments. 
you know, I mean, famously, mm-hmm. grief can also involve anger. Uh, in my case, I would categorize it more as kind of a low-level irritation. I was just like a little shorter of patience than usual. It can take many kinds of forms, resentment, regret, joy, gratitude. You know, there, there, there are so many variations emotionally uh, when, when you're going through the, through the experience of grief that sadness does seem to kind of barely get at what they are. And you brought up boredom. I mean, that one was very interesting to me. Um, and I, I was struck by how seldom I ever, if ever, I hear people talk about grief in those terms. But I found it profoundly boring. You know, I found it boring the way that, like, the way that um, being injured is boring. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly boring to just, like, every day wake up and, like, the same spot on your neck hurts or your back hurts or whatever it may be. You know, every day yes. you can't go out for a run. Every day you're, like, just a little bit off mood-wise because of this physical problem. And it's, it's, it grows tedious. And I felt that way about grief. You know, here we are again. You know, you wake up and you're, lo and behold, your father is still dead. <laughs> um, and and, yeah. and that, is, that is boring, you know. And um, does sorrow capture that? No, it does not. Is sorrow a contributing factor? Of course. And yet grief itself, I, I, I thought a lot while writing this book about both grief and love that they they... They feel to me topographic. You know, I kept picturing these kind of like relief maps of, of emotion because mm-hmm. they're so wildly varied, both of them. You know, we, we have these kind of monosyllabic words for them, grief, love, um, and yet it's the least monochromatic, the least um, uniform landscape you could ever imagine. Yeah. I mean, I love that you talked about, Catherine, the volatility. I lost my, it'll be four years next week that I lost my dad. And the volatility, it's the perfect word, along with this incredibly boring is one word, but it's almost like a, a fine misting across your life of just, oh, you you describe it as the word ugh yeah. with your sister, yeah. that, that, that just the phonetic sound, the expression of ugh, it's ugh, it's yeah. ugh some days and yeah. it's it's also, you know, I love that you talk about the complexities of grief, which you just mentioned, anxiety, irritation, anger, you know, that there is so much wrapped up in there that I don't think I certainly didn't understand about grief and I'm still learning about grief. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a um, it's a formidable teacher, you know, and I, I think it is. Um, unfortunately, it's it's one of many parts of life that you only really do learn about by going through it. And of course, it, it can then up and change on you at any moment. So even even whatever we learn feels a little bit tenuous. I'm very yeah. sorry about your dad. It's tough oh, and anniversaries you. are particularly tough, I know. I know, it, it's, it, but it shifts and it's, it's what you describe. You know, you very brilliantly in part one of the book shift that, you flip it and say, grief moves through you. You know, mm-hmm. there's so many books about moving through grief. Mm. Um, and that exact phrase, but that it moves through you, it shifts through time until one day it's just different, not necessarily better or easier, but it's just different. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. And I also just, you know, as someone who I had a very verbal family and very verbal father who was a newspaper reporter and he, you know, very inquisitive and talkative and my sister and I would come home from school and, you know, interacting with kids over the age of five about their days usually met with nothing happened, you know, or (laughs) (laughs) and so he would always try to gamely like interview us after school, like about our days. And sometimes we played along and other days we sneered at him. But I want to thank you slash articulate to the readers, people who are interested in reading your book, that you describe the act of, of watching your father die in his eyes. Um, and how how moving that is a wildly I don't even know what the word is profound but just incredibly heavy and uh, moving moment to watch someone start to die or to die or their eyes start to realize maybe what's happening um, and that I don't think I've ever heard anyone describe about death so th- thank you for for putting that into your book and for, for I don't know, I think for people out there, it's something that I hear a lot from people who have lost parents or loved ones is, is eye, eye contact and expression in the face because words eventually do stop. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad it felt 
both moving and in some sense accurate to you. I mean, I know yeah, everybody's experience uh, is, is wildly different, but it's been really touching for me. You know, I'm not normally a particularly personal writer and um, it's just been ongoingly moving to me to hear from readers who either lost someone, you know, whether it was two months ago or, or 40 years ago, um, or fell in love, you know, again, mm-hmm. whether it was whether it was two months ago or they just celebrated their 50th anniversary. And it's it's wonderful. You know, I am reminded um, there's a moment in the book when I say a very strange thing about writing about your own life is you really have no idea how similar your internal world is to other people or how different. Um, and, and so it's it's really fascinating uh, and in some ways kind of exciting to, to hear from people who are really responding because you have the moment of like, ah, yeah, you know, humanity, like we, we are <laughs> for as different as we are, for wildly different as our experiences may be and our circumstances, there are things that, that we share and it's possible to write about them and to kind of find one another um, through those experiences across however different they may be. I also love that you talked about, uh, I believe the term, there is a real technical term for this, is it bereavement hallucinations? <laughs> yeah. You also compare it to like, this can happen to people who are grieving. It can also happen to people who are, you know, on the ocean looking at a horizon repeatedly for, you know, over and over again, like that there's some science behind like cognitive loss, like a, a sudden removal of something, I guess, a space in your brain where someone or something once was where these hallucinations might come in. And I think a lot of people, I mean, I, I know many people who have said that they've heard heard the voices of people that they've lost really clearly. You've experienced it with a friend you lost young and with your grandmothers, your great-grandmother and your grandmother, but that you haven't experienced it with your dad. When you wrote the book, is that still true? You, you describe it so beautifully as like, like a tin can phone and that there's nothing on the other end. Have you ever heard him since or felt visited by him? Yeah, he called me up to tell me what he thought of the book. <laughs> no, uh, I wish I had. And it's, it's really striking to me that I haven't. I mean, I did find these, the literature on bereavement hallucinations is really fascinating. They're wildly common. Um, mm. And the longer you knew someone and the closer you were, uh, the, the more common they are. Uh, and I, as I write in the book, and as you as you mentioned, I, I had had those experiences and mm-hmm. they're truly uncanny, you mm-hmm. know, whether or not your cosmology permits of the possibility that in some way, some some essence of that person still exists and is communicating with you. Um, or in my case, if, if if you actually, you know, can't bring yourself to believe that at all, the experience of it is just like rawly convincing. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. um, yeah. it's a shocking thing to have happen. Uh, and. Someone's voice especially is just, you know, there's no imitating it, right? It's so, um, it's so itself, you know, it's, 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 there's the kind of thing you would, of course, recognize right away, you know, under any circumstances. So it was surprising to me that it didn't happen with my father, um, in part because it actually once happened with my father during his lifetime when I was living very far away. Uh, and I, I had the very uncanny experience of waking up to the sound of them calling my name. And I, I choose those words deliberately. It did not at all feel like a dream. Um, it felt very much like, you know, just my dad's inimitable voice saying my name in the way that only my father could um, on a day that, as it turned out, my father had a heart attack. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Right. Um, can't account for it. Um, probably wouldn't believe any account anyone else floated of it, uh, but it happened. So part of what was so strange was that then it did not happen after my father died. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really mourned it. You know, in addition to everything else I was grieving, I, I grieved uh, the failure of that to happen, the, the failure of, of, of any even fleeting sense of ongoing connection to him in that way. Of course, I'm connected to him in a million ways, but one longs in the face of death to have this kind mm-hmm. of tiny gift of sort of re-summoning someone, you know, putting them back together in, in the universe in some way. And it never happened, you know, and I, I certainly um, longed for it too. And, and to the best of one's abilities, which are non-existent, tried to kind of make it happen and, and it just never did. The making of it is a great, I felt very accurate um, because I tried to sort of set, decorate or, you know, direct, like I was like, I'm going to go find, you know, I came back from, but, but you described that, that you described looking for him when you go out running right after he's died. 
and the yearning and the searching of grief. And I kind of tried to like art direct a moment. And I was like walking through Central Park and was like, show me a sign, you know, because (laughs) he had been allegedly coming to my sister, which made me wildly jealous um in the form of hawks and other you know benevolent like it's a lot of birds I've birds and like forest animals that would pause and stare at her and I was really jealous but yeah I I really I appreciate your honesty around that that hasn't happened yeah I love that idea of art directing I mean I I am sure you know you and I are not alone I think a lot of people have just really, you know, desperately tried to to summon a lost loved one or imagine the circumstances that might conduce to them appearing or coming back. And yeah, um, it's very it's very sweet to me. You know, it's it's us trying so hard to get the cosmos in all of its mysteries to pay attention to us. Uh, and um, unfortunately, sometimes that's a real fool's game. But uh, but how beautiful that we try. And it's so striking, as people will learn in part two, your soon-to-be wife, Casey, is a Christian, Mm. which, talk a little bit about your spiritual life and her spiritual life and just the differences and the surprise in that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, yes, I, um, you heard my father's origin story, so you know he was Jewish, Uh, so was my Mm. mother, although she was raised in a very, very assimilated family. Uh, I was raised Jewish, um, not terribly observant, but but certainly, you know, we grew up in a synagogue. I got a Jewish education. I was bat mitzvahed. Uh, my family celebrated all the major and some of the minor Jewish holidays. But I don't think my father was ever a believer. Uh, and I know my mother wasn't. And I certainly think, and I share this conviction, actually, I think it was very important to my father that I understand that I was Jewish and understand the history um, and understand the the culture and the traditions I was connected to. And of course it was important to him. You know, he had unfortunately a front row seat to the deep fragility of of the Jewish tradition uh, and and how imperiled it has been throughout history in all kinds of ways. So I know it was very important to him that we understand culturally who we were and are. And it's important to me as well. But it certainly is absolutely uncoupled in my case from an actual theology, you know. Yeah. Um, I am uh, about as secular and, and skeptical as it is possible to be, which isn't to say, I mean, I think it's very obvious in the pages of this book, I'm incredibly moved by mm. existence and I find it, mm. I find it infinitely mysterious, infinitely far beyond our fathoming. Um, so almost nothing would surprise me in the sense that I'm prepared to be surprised Mm. because I'm very mindful. I feel that I know nothing, Um, but it would very much surprise me if the answer to the mysteries of the universe was that it was all the the handiwork of one all-powerful and benevolent being. I would eat a lot of words if that were the case. Uh, But that's that's my partner's ground floor. Um, She was uh, raised in the Lutheran church. She's a devout Lutheran she studied theology, uh, very seriously considered becoming a, a minister. And I can't begin to say how good that's been for me. You know, I think yeah. that it's an unfortunate reality of contemporary American life that if you are not Christian, it is tragically possible to encounter Christianity only in its worst incarnations, which is to mm-hmm. say either it's crassly commercial ones, which kind of, you know, impose upon us five months out of the year, you know. around Easter and then for a steady kind of four-month drumbeat around Christmas, um, or to encounter it in incredibly ungenerous and inaccurate forms that have departed wildly uh, from what my partner would accurately point out are the the fundaments of Christianity, which quite frankly are about basically about tending to the poor and the sick. (laughs) Uh, We've we've come a very long way from there in Mm. most of contemporary America. But yeah, I find it wonderful to have fallen in love and, and married someone who was theologically an incredibly sophisticated thinker. It's very humbling to me because I think I was actually in many ways a theologically pretty glib thinker mm-hmm. um, and also just an uninformed one. You know, unlike her, I have not read scripture. I have a very shallow understanding of even my own religion, let alone other people's religion. Um, but it's also beautiful and moving to me because we actually kind of share most of the sense of the mysteries of the world. You know, we were interested in the same kinds of questions. We're interested in the cosmos and, and how it came to be and what its purpose is. We're interested in humans and how we came to be and, and, and 
how it is we're supposed to live, you know, and what it means to live a moral life and what it means to live a just life. And the fact that she has a different framework for grappling with those questions turns out to be much less important than the fact that we we care about the same kinds of questions. And in fact, it feels wonderfully expansive to me that we have different frameworks for answering those questions because sometimes things that seem complicated to me seem deeply simple to her and things that seem complicated to her seem to deeply simple to me. And so in, in, in many ways, it's uh, uh, our outlooks, our cosmologies, although very different, are helpfully compatible. There's so many wonderful words and concepts and meaning of life, philosophical questions raised and, and maybe even answered. I don't think you ever use the word fate. I think you talk a little bit about people's belief in destiny, but I wonder if you have a feeling about fate. Do you believe in that? Is it too big or? I certainly believe in the feeling of fate, uh, but, mm -hmm. I, but I don't believe in fate, uh, which is to say we've all had experiences of, that seem just staggering in, in either how coincidental they are or... Uh, in how magical they are. And mm -hmm. um, of course, it's easy to ascribe those to, to fate, which is to say, um, you know, forces beyond ourselves that, that have kind of um, manipulated all these factors into positions so that everything worked out just so. That's absolutely at odds with how I regard the universe. Uh, and, and frankly, with how my partner regards the universe, because she would just say, you know, say what you mean, right? God, you know, someone made yeah. this happen. But I, I don't believe, I don't believe anyone made it happen. Um, and yet I believe wonderful things happen. And, and to me, that actually is the beauty. You know, to me, mm -hmm. the love story is a good example. You know, I do think many people, uh, when, they, when they fall in love, feel that the, the beauty, part of the beauty is that, you know, they were made for each other in, in some deep literal mm -hmm. sense, you know, that mm -hmm. um, some divine power created these two people that they may someday fall in love or some divine power at a, at a minimum set them on this inevitable path towards the encounter that would transform their life. For me, the beauty is the opposite of that, which is all of this time and all of this space. And yet somehow one day you and your partner do find each other. You know, it's, it's just, it's plucked out of the realm of the impossible and, and yet it happens. Uh, and, and to me, that's, that's beautiful. You know, what's beautiful is the astonishingness. The, what's beautiful is how easily it could have not happened and yet it did. And that's utterly sufficient for me. It's so beautiful when you do marry, um, you have a wedding and a ceremony and you take the family photo with your mom and there's this space. I think it's like a body of water maybe, mm -hmm. or you're mm -hmm. in a body of water, but you describe it as a family portrait. Like it's his space. Your dad is there. That felt so moving because my dad has been dead for 20 years, but I think I eloped because I just didn't oh. want to, I couldn't imagine my dad not being there. Oh. And then even just the emotion in that, like the whole walking down the aisle. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a tricky thing about weddings for a lot of people. You know, there's someone who can't be there or someone who chooses not to be there and, and either one can be excruciatingly painful. Um, I was not an excruciating pain at my wedding. It was it was wildly yeah. joyful. But it is true that um, I have a beautiful picture from the wedding. I I kept it on my desk beside me the entire time I was working on this book. Uh, and it, it is. It's of me and my mom. Um, but we're a little bit off center in the frame. And so, yes, on, on the other side of me, uh, my mom's on one side. And then there's me. And on the other side of me, there's this, like, beautiful May, you know, late spring, perfect day we got. And the Chesapeake Bay in the background just absolutely as gorgeous as can be and it took my breath away when I first saw it because it did feel like that emptiness at my side was just the most visually arresting representation of the fact that my father was not at our wedding that that could possibly happen I mean obviously there was no way to have a picture of my dad at our wedding and yet in some initially very painful way and, and ultimately I think very beautiful way it felt to me like kind of a picture of my dad because of course yeah no one could take his place, right? There, there was no, there was nothing but nothingness. Uh, and, and so to somehow have this really expansive feeling, emptiness on the side of my mom, this beautiful, like out to the horizon view across the Chesapeake Bay felt like, yeah, I mean, that's, that's how it was.
Yeah. I wanted to close out with one last question. You have a baby. And (laughs) I heard Amy Eddings ask you this, but what do you hope your daughter will inherit from your father, from Isaac? Mm. Or what has she already? Well, with your permission, I'm going to give the same answer because it's so heartfelt. I I can't imagine. I couldn't gin up another one. So my father's name was Isaac, which means laughter. And when my daughter was about two and a half months old, she went down for a nap one day, having never laughed a day in her life. And she woke up from that nap laughing. Um, it's the most beautiful sound I've ever heard, uh, as, as, as every parent will probably tell you. It brought tears to my eyes. It was mm. just unbelievable. And she's never stopped laughing since then. She oh uh, just has an incredibly joyful little soul. I have no idea where it came from. Um, it's, it's all her own. And it's so moving to me because it does make me think of my father all the time. And what I hope for her is that, and, and what I take very seriously as, as my charge as her parent is to protect and cherish that part of her and, and make sure um, it is always sustained and that it always sustains her. Because my father, you know, understood better than anyone, given his background, that laughing and, and, and seeing the joy and the humor in life is not at odds with recognizing its gravity or its tragedy. It is, in fact, the, the absolutely necessary counterbalance for ourselves and for one another. So I hope that my, my daughter's little laughing spirit will just, just grow and grow and uh, keep her in touch with her family inheritance, as it were, and, and keep her at balance and at ease in the world. I mean, maybe he's, he's talking to her. In her maybe, dreams. maybe, yeah. She's the one who's getting to hear him crack all his She's jokes. Yeah, well, if she, when she starts talking, if she does so with an accent, I'll let you know. This podcast was created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Felt. You can always listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, and anywhere you get your shows. Follow us at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter that accompanies new episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com. And if you can, please head to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us. It's just a little thing you can do, and it makes such a difference for us to get the word out about our show. Thanks for listening.